Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference Post-Mortem for October of 2017. You know, Elder Oaks' talk in General Conference pretty much sucked all the oxygen out of the room from everybody else who spoke. And a great deal has been said about Elder Oaks' talk by Bill Real and also by myself prior to this. So what I want to do tonight is look at the other talks that were given in General Conference in the fall of 2017 because there were a number of things that were said that were remarkable, both for good and for ill. And my purpose tonight is to talk about the good things that I saw in General Conference and the things that I saw in General Conference that I consider to be problematic. In preparation for this podcast, I downloaded all the talks from General Conference, including the women's session of General Conference, into a Word document that ends up totaling 138 pages, and that's after I take out all the pictures and all the extraneous material other than the actual text of the talk. 138 pages. That is a lot of talking. And with all that talking, I have winnowed down to a few talks and a few comments that I want to mention tonight, while giving you the assurance that I have read through each and every one of those talks that was given. The first thing I'd like to talk about tonight is a thumbs up for Elder Uchtdorf in the General Women's Conference. He said a number of things that were very good and very important and very timely. One of those things he talked about was World War II. Now, of course, President Uchtdorf is German. That's probably not a surprise to anybody who's heard him speak. Also, he once was a pilot, and that sort of comes up later on in his talk. Probably not a surprise. But the thing that he says that I think is very important especially in this time and season when the church is struggling with how to address the issue of homosexual members in the church. Yes, I'm sorry, Elder Bednar, there actually are homosexual members in the LDS church. In spite of how uncomfortable it has been made for them, there still are some present. It is against that backdrop that what President Uchtdorf said is so important in talking about World War II, he himself being a German, though, of course, very, very young. Here is what he says. In the year I was born, the world was immersed in a terrible war that brought agonizing grief and consuming sorrow to the world. This war was caused by my own nation. Kudos to you, President Uchtdorf, for saying what is obvious, but yet I think it's important for us to hear you say that about your nation. This war was caused by my own nation, by a group of people who identified certain other groups as evil and encouraged hatred toward them. Now, President Uchtdorf is not giving us a history lesson. What he's doing is he is taking the lessons of history and making an application to today and what is going on today in the church with their attitudes toward homosexual people, transgender people, people with different sexual orientations or identifications than what is commonly accepted as orthodox in Mormon circles. He cannot and he does not make this point explicit, but it is there for anyone with ears to hear. Once again, he says, this war was caused by my own nation, by a group of people who identified certain other groups as evil and encouraged hatred toward them. A friend of mine once said that general conference is really not when the leaders of the church get up and talk to the members. It's actually when leaders of the church get up and talk to the other leaders of the church. They may as well turn around and address all the leaders who are sitting behind them. I think that's what President Uchtdorf is doing with this talk. He goes on. They silenced those they did not like. Let's stop there for a second, because that has application not just to the homosexual community and the transgender community, but it also has application to those members of the church who are standing up and saying things about the church that they find distasteful or questionable or immoral. Too often these people are sought to be silenced by their local leaders. This is what President Uchtdorf is saying. They silenced those they did not like. They shamed 
and demonized them. Is any of that going on? Is there any shaming and demonizing of people who disagree with the church going on, as well as with the LGBTQ community? Elder Uchtdorf goes on, they considered them inferior even less than human. Is there any of that going on in the leadership of the church, considering people who are homosexual as inferior in some way? Now, out of one side of their mouth, they'll give lip service to the idea that they are not inferior, that we should love them because we're all God's children. But out of the other side of their mouth, they put policies in the leadership manual that direct local leaders that being homosexual or being in a homosexual relationship, whether it's legally recognized or not, is apostasy and grounds for excommunication. And not only that, if there's a child of a person who is in one of those relationships, that child cannot receive the ordinances of the gospel when they are a child. They cannot be blessed as a baby. They cannot be baptized when they're age eight. They cannot receive the priesthood. If they're a male, they can't go on a mission whether they're male or female, until such time as they are at least 18 years old, leave the house and reject openly the lifestyle of the offending homosexual parent and get approval from the first presidency of the church. That sounds like considering them inferior to me. That's what Elder Uchtdorf says. They considered them inferior, even less than human. Once you degrade a group of people, this is what President Uchtdorf says, once you degrade a group of people, you are more likely to justify words and acts of violence against them. Bravo, President Uchtdorf. The message is coming through loud and clear. I just wish you had the cojones to actually say what it is that you're saying. Now, I understand that you would get terrible pushback from actually saying what it is that you're saying. But you are a member of the First Presidency, and we need you to have that courage. President Uchtdorf says, I shudder when I think about what happened in 20th century Germany. What he does not say is, I also shudder when I think about what is happening in 21st century Mormonism. But the message is coming through, to me anyway, President Uchtdorf. I want you to know, I'm getting the message. Radio Free Mormon, get your message, and is broadcasting it behind enemy lines. President Uchtdorf goes on. When someone opposes or disagrees with us, here we get to the critics of the church part where he wants to solicit understanding, empathy, compassion. When someone opposes or disagrees with us, it is tempting to assume that there must be something wrong with them. And from there, it's a small step to attach the worst of motives to their words and actions. Does that ever happen to people who raise questions or concerns about the Mormon church or its history or its doctrine? That there's something wrong with them. There's a problem with them. And then the worst motives are attached to their words and actions. In other words, they're not bringing up these questions because they sincerely have these questions. Rather, they're bringing up these questions because they're lazy. They're sinful. They want to sin. Or somebody offended them. That's the trifecta, isn't it? Either a person who has questions or doubts about the church wants to sin or is lazy and doesn't want to keep the commandments or somebody offended them. Those are the worst of motives to attach to their words and actions. Now, President Uchtdorf does hold the party line a little bit here. He does say, of course, we must always stand for what is right, and there are times when we must raise our voices for that cause. Okay, well, that's understandable. That's reasonable. However, he says, however, when we do so with anger or hate in our hearts, when we lash out at others to hurt, shame, or silence them, Yes, he actually says that. When we lash out at others to hurt, shame, or silence them, chances are we are not doing so in righteousness. Well, that's an understatement. How many people in the LDS community who have podcasts or blogs or write books have been silenced because their priesthood leaders disagree with what it is that they're saying? How many people who have blogs have been told, you can keep your membership if you will agree to be silenced by taking down what it is that you wrote in your blog? I believe that Rock Waterman fits in that category. How many members have been told that we will not excommunicate you if you recall a book that you have published? I believe that Denver Snuffer fits in that category. 
What Elder Uchtdorf is saying here is registering his disagreement and his protest against such actions by local leaders. But once again, because it is veiled language, because it is implied rather than stated clearly, it is a simple matter for this message to go over the heads of those to whom it should be directed, which are local church leaders, bishops and state presidents, and even Area 70, who need to understand and know that they should not be trying to silence people just because they disagree with him. So I give two thumbs way up for President Uchtdorf's address in the General Women's Conference meeting. President Uchtdorf speaks again in the Saturday morning session, and once again, I've got to go to him. This is sort of a mixed thumbs up, thumbs down, sort of an ambivalent review. What he speaks about here is a trip that he took with his family to the eastern United States and visited church history sites, and he says, in a special way, we've relived the history of that time. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to talk about members of the church who fell away and even questioned the prophetic calling of Joseph Smith. And yet, even though they fell away, he wants to extend charity and understanding toward them. And I think that is all to the good. Once again, thumbs up to President Uchtdorf. Here's what he says. People I had read so much about. People like Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and Thomas B. Marsh. Now, Thomas B. Marsh is an interesting figure because as far as Martin Harris goes and Oliver Cowdery goes, they're both witnesses to the Book of Mormon. So we talk about them in somewhat glowing terms in the standard LDS church curriculum. But Thomas B. Marsh, there's really nothing good that is said about Thomas B. Marsh in regular church meetings. In fact, pretty much the only time his name comes up is to talk about the milk strippings incident in which he is lambasted as being somebody who would leave the church, leave his position as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles over such a simple matter as an argument about milk strippings. So I think it's important that President Uchtdorf includes Thomas B. Marsh in this list. He says, People I had read so much about, people like Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, and Thomas B. Marsh, became more real to me as we walked where they walked and pondered the sacrifices they made to build the kingdom of God. Really? President Uchtdorf, Thomas B. Marsh actually made sacrifices to build the kingdom of God? He didn't just get in a squabble about milk strippings and then go off in a huff and leave the church? Thank you for saying that. Not only about Martin Harrison and Oliver Cowdery, but especially about Thomas B. Marsh. President Uchtdorf goes on, They had many great traits that allowed them to make significant contributions to the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ. But they were also human, weak, and fallible just as you and I are. Some found themselves at variance with the prophet Joseph Smith and fell away from the church. So here, President Uchtdorf is saying, look, these guys, and guys like them, were very important in the early history of the church. They made great sacrifices as part of the restoration. But you know, they were also human, weak, and fallible as well, just as you and I are. All of that is to the good. The part where this review of this talk becomes a little bit more ambivalent is when he says they were also human, weak, and fallible and found themselves at variance with the prophet Joseph Smith and fell away from the church. Now, it's okay to say that they're human, weak, and fallible, but to imply that the fact that they were human, weak, and fallible is why they found themselves at variance with the prophet Joseph Smith is the problem that I have with this part of his talk. In fact, it may have been their greatest strength that they found themselves at variance with the prophet Joseph Smith. It may be a sign of their authenticity and their integrity that they found themselves at variance with the prophet Joseph Smith. So there, the grade of this talk goes down from maybe an A plus to possibly a B minus. And it goes down further when he says, we might have a tendency to judge these brethren and other members like them. We might say, I would never have abandoned the prophet Joseph. While that may be true, he continues, we don't really know what it was like to live in that time in those circumstances. No, they were not perfect, but how encouraging it is to know that God was able to use them anyway. The strange part about that quote is that he says, while that may be true, we don't really know what it was like to live in that time. I think that's a good idea to give that kind of charity to people. We don't know what it was like to live in that time, but really the reason that they fell away is something that we do know a lot about. It's just that President Uchtdorf doesn't want to talk about it, and we never talk about it in regular church meetings. What we do know is that Thomas B. Marsh left the church because he was horrified by the depredations that the Mormons were committing on the Missourians, as he testified to in his affidavit that was also signed by Orson Hyde. And Oliver Cowdery left primarily because of the affair that Joseph Smith had 
with Fanny Alger. So when President Uchtdorf says we don't really know what it was like to live in that time, well, that's true, but we know an awful lot about why it was that these people left the church, but we don't want to talk about that because that would make it maybe look like it was not a failing or a weakness on the part of these men that they came to be at odds with Joseph Smith and what he and the Mormons were doing. So that talk gets thumbs up, thumbs down. Good try, poor execution. The next talk of any significance in my mind is Elder Dallin Oaks' talk, The Plan and the Proclamation. That has been hashed out quite a bit so far. I will do a future podcast dealing with the specific issue, which has not been talked about very much, about the new doctrine that is contained in the Family Proclamation. There has been quite a bit said by President Hinckley as well as by Elder Oaks that this proclamation is just a rehash and a reaffirmation of things that have been said by prophets for decades. But really, that is not completely true because there is at least one critical sentence in the proclamation that contains stuff that has not been said before and is trying to insert new doctrine in under the door and without anybody really noticing what it is that they're doing. It is an attempt to insert new doctrine into the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints without any kind of scriptural basis or even any basis in the words of former prophets. As I say, I will try and devote an entire episode to that issue. But for now, I'm going to skip Elder Oaks' talk, the plan and the proclamation, and move on to Elder Holland's talk. Be ye therefore perfect eventually. Now, there's a lot of good things to say about Elder Holland's talk, and I want to say that before I get to the negative stuff, because I think that's only fair. The overall view of his talk is that he doesn't want members of the church to get obsessed with perfectionism. He doesn't want them to get anorexic or bulimic or have anxiety because of this continual perfectionism that the LDS Church puts on its members. How does the LDS Church put this perfectionism on its members? Well, because it's got a list of commandments a mile long, and we hear over and over and over and over and over in the church that we've got to keep all those commandments perfectly in order to get in to the celestial kingdom. So what Elder Holland is trying to do is say, hey, you don't have to do it all right now. Just try and be a little better every day. Don't go crazy on it or anything, but just try and be a little more obedient to the commandments every day. I think that much is positive, even though he keeps inserting language that basically takes away all the positive stuff he's saying. I will get to that in a minute. In the first part, though, he talks about the Sermon on the Mount and where Jesus is giving the antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount. The parts where Jesus says, you know, in the Law of Moses, it says you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And the law says that you shall not kill, but I say unto you, if you are even angry with your brother, then you've already committed the equivalent of killing him. Then Elder Holland says, if that is your morning scripture study, and after reading just that far, you are pretty certain you are not going to get good marks on your gospel report card, then the final commandment in the chain is sure to finish the job. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So what Elder Holland has done here is done a good job of showing how impossible it is to keep the commandments of God. There is no human being on earth who has ever succeeded in keeping all the commandments of God. And Elder Holland would say that the one exception to that would be someone who is technically a little bit more than human, who was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Elder Holland says... With that concluding imperative, in other words, be perfect, we want to go back to bed and pull the covers over our head. Such celestial goals seem beyond our reach. Well, that's because they are beyond our reach. And here's what Elder Holland says. Yet surely the Lord would never give us a commandment he knew we could not keep. Let me repeat that. Yet surely the Lord would never give us a commandment he knew we could not keep. Well, that's a strange thing to say, and yet it's a very Mormon thing to say. We believe in our heart of hearts that a person, by sheer dint of effort and force of will, could keep all of the commandments that the Lord has given to us. And yet nobody ever does. Nobody ever does. And Elder Holland would agree with us. Nobody's ever done it except for Jesus Christ. And in fact, we have scriptures that are a testament to that fact, including 1 John 1.10 that says, If any of you say you have no sin, you are liars. And the truth is not in you. And Romans chapter 3 verse 23 which says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody sins 
except for Jesus. Why is that, Elder Holland? Well, the answer is simple. Because nobody can keep all of the commandments of God, no matter how hard they try. It is against that backdrop that I want to repeat what Elder Holland has said. Yet surely the Lord would never give us a commandment he knew we could not keep. Once again, that's interesting from a purely Mormon framework, which as part of its Garden of Eden story, declares that God gave to Adam and Eve conflicting commandments. The one being that they should not eat of the fruit of the tree of life, which would cause them to fall and make it so that they could have children. And the other being that they should multiply and replenish the earth. This is frequently talked of in Mormon circles as conflicting commandments. They could not keep both commandments. In order to keep one of them, they would have to violate the other. So within this Mormon perspective, the Lord has given commandments that he knew that mortals, or at least Adam and Eve, could not keep. And Adam and Eve, remember the temple, respectively being each and every one of us, the Lord has given us commandments that we cannot keep. In fact, he has given us a system of commandments that we cannot keep. Now, I'm not going to go into this any further, although theologically, if we go from there, we can come to some very interesting conclusions. After saying, yet surely the Lord would never give us a commandment he knew we could not keep, Elder Holland continues and says, let's see where this quandary takes us. But he doesn't take it in this direction. He takes it into a very Mormon and Orthodox direction, which does not deal with this fundamental problem that God gives us commandments we cannot keep. Theoretically, God could give us commandments that we could keep. If God said, you shall not kill another person with premeditation, the vast majority of people who live on planet Earth could keep that commandment, and God could limit his commandments to that one commandment, if he wanted to. The vast majority of people on Earth could keep that commandment, but for some reason, God seems intent on giving his children a system of commandments that he knows in advance they cannot keep. And if we follow that line of thinking, we may come to some interesting conclusions as to why God would do such a thing. But that's not where Elder Holland's going to go. Elder Holland is instead going to skim along the surface. But he is going to talk about how we shouldn't beat ourselves up over the fact that we are not perfect. In spite of that, he says, What I now say in no way denies or diminishes any commandment God has ever given us. You see, here's the problem. He says one thing on one side, which is I'm going to give you some slack now. Look, we're not perfect. I just want you to be a little bit better every day. Perfection may be in the eternities. But then he takes away the grace he's given by saying, what I now say in no way denies or diminishes any commandment God has ever given us. Well, those are the commandments we can't keep in the first place, Elder Holland, that are causing us all of this misery and all of this depression among Mormon society. He says, I also know that as children of God, we should not demean or vilify ourselves as if beating up on ourselves is somehow going to make us the person God wants us to become. Well, I think that's a good point, Elder Holland. He says, I would hope we could pursue personal improvement in a way that does not include getting ulcers or anorexia. Well, he would hope that, and I think that's a good goal, and I think his talk moves in a little direction toward that, but as much as it moves in that direction... I think it moves at least as much in the opposite direction of setting in place and recognizing and submitting in place the fact that we are supposed to follow every single commandment that God has given us, which we cannot do, which is what is leading to these emotional problems in the first place. As an example of that, he goes on to say, I hasten to say that focusing on the Father's and the Son's achievements rather than our failures does not give us one ounce of justification for undisciplined lives or dumbing down our standards. So there he says it again. He takes away what he's given. We cannot justify undisciplined lives. Well, I think we understand that, but also dumbing down our standards. We will not dumb down our standards. They are still there. These commandments are still essential. And even though I'm telling you, I understand that, you know, we're not perfect. Still, he's holding us up to that same perfection model. Then speaking of God and Jesus, he says, it is not too much for them to ask us to be a little more godlike in little things. Here's where he's talking about the incremental approach, baby steps down the street. It is not too much for them to ask us to be a little more godlike in little things that we speak and act, love and forgive, repent and improve, at least at the 100 pence level of perfection, which it is clearly within our ability to do. So, I don't want to get all theological on you, but this is the problem. The idea that 
We can continue to perfect ourselves if we just do it gradually. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Well, the problem is that you cannot eat an elephant, at least not at one sitting, even if it's one bite at a time. You cannot do it. And we cannot perfect ourselves by our own efforts, even if we try to do so incrementally. This is like the guy on the Ed Sullivan Show who is spinning plates, and he's got eight plates up there, and he has to keep running back to keep spinning those poles that have the plates on them, because they're starting to wobble, they're getting ready to fall. He puts the ninth plate on. Ultimately, although if he's doing his act right, it doesn't come to this. Ultimately, when you get to the 11th or 12th pole and the plate on top of that pole, you are not able to continue spinning all the plates. The plates will begin to fall off and shatter on the floor. That is what it is like trying to keep all the commandments of God. It cannot be done even incrementally, even if you're just adding one plate at a time. The point will come where plates will begin to fall off on the floor and you will find that you cannot keep all of the commandments of God. And once again, that leads us to a position that is very important theologically, but one that the general authorities, including Elder Holland, do not talk about or let us consider. So he ends with his exhortation, let's strive for steady improvement without obsessing over what behavioral scientists call toxic perfectionism. Now that's interesting because he's talked about toxic perfectionism. This idea of perfectionism, it can become toxic. It has become toxic for too many Latter-day Saints, which is ostensibly why Elder Holland is giving this talk, and yet he's contributing to it in the very sentence in which he is trying to say, let's not do it. He says, let's strive for steady improvement. Okay, that would be the perfectionism, Elder Holland. Let's strive for steady improvement without obsessing over what behavioral scientists call toxic perfectionism. And then he adds this next part, which I think has significance above and beyond the main message of this talk. He says, we should avoid that latter excessive expectation of ourselves and of others. And I might add of those who are called to serve in the church, which for Latter-day Saints means everyone. For we are all called to serve somewhere. This becomes a theme upon which President Eyring is going to elaborate in his priesthood session talk. But Elder Holland mentions it here. And what he's trying to say is, look, none of us are perfect. The leaders are not perfect either. And don't expect perfection from us either. We have our imperfections as well as the next person. Now, Elder Holland doesn't hit this note anywhere near as hard as President Eyring does, so I'm just bringing it up here to note that this is a theme that begins to develop in General Conference, and which President Eyring is going to put the capstone on. So I'm going to give this, uh, I think this is a thumbs down and thumbs up talk from Elder Holland, but at least he gets a partial thumbs up, which is better than what I usually give him. The next talk I want to focus on is given by Elder Quinton L. Cook. It's called The Eternal Every Day, which is a line from a poem that he gets around to citing or quoting at the end of his talk. And the actual subject of his talk, as you read it through, is about humility. But he veers off subject now and then in order to make some very unusual points. For instance, he says this about equality. Yes, we have an apostle of the LDS Church talking about equality. All ears perk up. We lean forward. We pay attention. What is he going to say about this? This is what he says. We are all equal before God. His doctrine is clear. In the Book of Mormon, we read, All are alike unto God, including black and white, bond and free, male and female. Well, this is a very interesting statement for him to make. All are equal before God, and he even quotes the Book of Mormon correctly on the subject. This verse has been in the Book of Mormon, since it came off the press in 1830, all are alike unto God, including black and white, bond and free, male and female. Well, if that is true, Elder Cook, why is it that black people were denied the priesthood for over a hundred years in this church? And black men and women could not enter into the temple to receive the ordinances of exaltation in the church for over a hundred years. If the Book of Mormon, the founding scripture of the LDS Church says, all are alike unto God, including black and white, how do you explain that seeming discrepancy? The Book of Mormon says that all are alike unto God, including male and female. Then, Elder Cook, how do you explain the fact that females in the LDS Church are not allowed to hold the priesthood, perform ordinances of salvation, 
outside the temple anyway, and are not able to have any positions of leadership in the church over other men. The Book of Mormon seems to militate against the positions of the church in its history and even currently. And when the Book of Mormon says all are alike unto God, Elder Cook, does that include straight and gay? How can we say that they are alike unto God given the church's current position on gay marriage and gay rights? Well, Elder Cook seemingly tries to insinuate an answer to those questions after quoting the Book of Mormon scripture. Here's what he says. We are all equal before God. His doctrine is clear. In the Book of Mormon, we read, all are alike unto God, including black and white, bond and free, male and female. Then he says... Accordingly, all are invited to come to the Lord. Well, that was a sneaky move, Elder Cook. With that one comment at the end of the scriptural text, he has taken everything that the Book of Mormon says and interpreted it to mean, it doesn't make any difference who you are, you're invited to come to the Lord, which in LDS parlance means you're invited to get baptized into the church. But after you get baptized into the church, you sure are not equal before the Lord. In other words, he's saying everybody's equal before the Lord, like the Book of Mormon says, but only to the extent that they are invited to come into the church. Strange that all should be equal before the Lord, before they come into the church, but after they come into the church, that equality ends. That's a strange state of things, I think. Then, in an amazing blindness to the history of the LDS Church, of which he is an apostle, Elder Cook goes on to say, anyone who claims superiority under the Father's plan because of characteristics like race, sex, nationality, language, or economic circumstances is morally wrong and does not understand the Lord's true purpose for all of our Father's children. Leaving aside the obvious glaring inconsistency with the church's position on homosexuals at present, what about the priesthood ban and temple ban on blacks that existed for over a hundred years in the church? Does that fall into this category of what Elder Cook says, anyone who claims superiority under the Father's plan because of characteristics like race, sex, nationality, language, or economic circumstances is morally wrong? Did he just throw all the leaders of the LDS Church for over a hundred years who claim superiority under the Father's plan because of their race. By the way, you cannot claim inferiority on the part of the blacks without simultaneously claiming superiority on your own part. It kind of works that way. It's two sides of the same coin. Did Elder Cook just throw all the leaders of the church under the bus who claimed that superiority as being morally wrong? And he says not only that, not only are they morally wrong, but they do not understand the Lord's true purpose for all of our father's children. Is that correct, Elder Cook, that for over a hundred years, the leaders of this church did not understand the Lord's true purpose for all of our father's children? What a remarkable statement to make. Now, I actually agree with you in that statement, but I have trouble thinking that that's really what you mean by it. It is an amazing thing that leaders of the church today can say things that are so out of harmony with the history of the church. This church is not even 200 years old. It is young as far as religions go, but they can say things today that are so contradicted by their history, and yet they don't seem to care. They don't seem to think that they're being inconsistent. They don't seem to be worried about being called on being inconsistent, and maybe that's because nobody's ever going to tell them. They do live in a bubble. They're surrounded by yes people, mostly yes men, and none of them are ever going to say, hey, Elder Cook, um, you know, what you said really doesn't make any sense, especially as a Mormon leader, because you're the head of a church who has claimed superiority because of race in your 200-year history. In fact, as recently as 1978, I'm only 57 years old, but that's when I was graduating high school. It's not that long ago, and I think Elder Cook's probably older than I am. Going on in his rather lengthy talk about the subject of humility, Elder Cook takes a swipe at authenticity. Now, authenticity is something that's very, very important for people to come to grips with. It has to do with integrity. Integrity means being the same on the outside as you are on the inside. Authenticity means being authentic to your true self. As Polonius says in Hamlet, to thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day thou canst not then be false to any man. Authenticity is very important, but the LDS Church does not want people to be authentic to themselves, unless 
that authenticity to themselves lines up in every detail with authenticity to the LDS Church. Here's what he says. In today's world, there is an increased emphasis on pride, self-aggrandizement, and so-called authenticity. That's an interesting expression, so-called authenticity. Why is it that whenever a church leader talks about something that is generally considered to be a positive attribute like authenticity, they put in front of it so-called authenticity. I believe Elder Packer did the same thing when he was talking about intellectuals a number of years ago, talking about the greatest threats to the church, including so-called intellectuals. Well, what he means by so-called intellectuals is the intellectuals who don't agree with the Mormon position up and down the line. Intellectuals who find themselves at variance with the LDS church on one or more issues are by definition so-called intellectuals from Elder Packer's point of view. If they were real intellectuals, they would agree with the Mormon church because they disagree. Now they're so-called intellectuals. Elder Cook is doing the exact same type of maneuver. People who are authentic Mormons agree up and down with the Mormon church, but if they disagree as part of being authentic, now they're not really authentic. They're just being so-called authentic. His quote again, In today's world, there is an increased emphasis on pride, self-aggrandizement, and so-called authenticity. Notice that authenticity gets lumped in with the rather negative attributes of pride and self-aggrandizement, which sometimes leads to a lack of true humility. Some suggest the moral values for happiness today include be real, be strong, be productive. Well, that's a terrible thing, isn't it? Why is he saying this like it's a bad thing? Some suggest the moral values for happiness today include be real, be strong, be productive. I thought that was the Mormon position, but now he's sounding like it's not. And most importantly, don't rely on other people. I thought that was the Mormon position too. When it comes to going to the bishop to see if you qualify for welfare, don't they go through the list and say, okay, have you asked you know, your family? Have you asked all these different people in order to try and get help from them before you go to the church for help? You should not be relying on other people. You should be independent. I thought that was a Mormon attribute. But here we've got Elder Cook talking like it's exactly the opposite. Once again, he says, some suggest the moral values for happiness today include be real, be strong, be productive. And most important, don't rely on other people because your fate is in your own hands. So in order to decry the virtue of authenticity, Elder Cook has to subvert many of the Mormon doctrines and tenets that I grew up learning were part and parcel of the LDS Church. But Elder Cook is not done with slamming authenticity yet. No, he goes on to say, some misuse authenticity, it's in italics in the talk, some misuse authenticity as a celebration of the natural man and qualities that are the opposite of humility, kindness, mercy, forgiveness, and civility. Actually, the people that I know who are authentic are the most abounding in the qualities of humility, kindness, mercy, forgiveness, and civility. It is those who are not authentic to themselves, but are rather authentic to an organized religion that are usually, not always, but quite frequently, the least abounding in those qualities of humility, kindness, mercy, forgiveness, and civility. Elder Cook goes on, we can celebrate our individual uniqueness as children of God. Can we stop there for a second? We can celebrate our individual uniqueness as children of God. I thought that Mormon doctrine was that everybody who's ever lived on this earth is a child of God, including a whole one-third of the host of heaven who's never going to be born on the earth, who are children of God. What uniqueness is in that? What individual uniqueness is in that? If everybody is a child of God, how is it unique to be a child of God? We can celebrate, he says, our individual uniqueness as children of God without using authenticity as an excuse for unchristlike behavior. Well, I don't see a lot of people using authenticity as an excuse for unchristlike behavior. The people, again, that I know who are truly authentic are the most Christ-like people in my experience. What Elder Cook is actually trying to do is he is trying to demonize shades of Elder Uchtdorf's talk. Remember when he says we shouldn't demonize people because they're different? What he's trying to demonize is people who are authentic to themselves because frequently people who are authentic to themselves find themselves at variance with one or more tenets, doctrines, or principles of the church. Elder Cook doesn't want that to happen and therefore he is slamming authenticity right, left, and sideways. The next talk I want to focus on is called The Truth of All Things. It's by Elder David F. 
Evans of the 70. This is one of the talks where people having questions about the church is mentioned and tried to be downplayed and subsumed under the idea of even if you have questions about the church, look, keep active in the church, keep doing the things you're supposed to be doing, keep paying your tithing, and everything will be fine even if your questions are never answered. Elder Evans starts off with a personal story. As a young man, he says, I had many questions about the church. Some of my questions were sincere. Others were not and reflected the doubts of others. Notice the dichotomy that he's immediately putting into his talk between questions and doubts. Questions are sincere. Others were not and reflected the doubts of others. So doubts are insincere questions. And of course, these were none of his, but they actually were given to him by other people. So he's kind of really not that guilty. He says, I often discuss my questions with my mother. Well, that's a good thing. I am sure that she could sense that many of my questions were sincere and from my heart. I think she was a little disappointed in those questions that were less sincere and more argumentative. So now he's adding on to this idea that questions that are not sincere are argumentative. So if you're argumentative about any of your questions, now they're not sincere. However, she never put me down for having questions. Good for her. Good for mom. She would listen and try to answer them. Also good for her. When she sensed that she had said all that she could and that I still had questions, she would say something like this. David, that is a good question. While you are searching and reading and praying for the answer, why don't you do the things you know you should and not do the things you know you should not? Okay, so this is the basic theme. You've got questions. You don't have answers. You can continue to look for the answers. But while you're looking for the answers, no matter what those answers are, and he's not going to give us any specifics because we never get any specifics in any of these conference talks that talk about questions or doubts or what's what or which is who or what those doubts are and what the answers are. I mean, there are only prophets, seers, and revelators up there. So God forbid that they should actually give us any answers to any of these questions. No, they're just going to talk in general terms. Maybe that's why they're called general authorities. Ha ha. So Elder Evans goes on, This became the pattern for my search for truth. Through study, prayer, and keeping the commandments, yes, keeping the commandments, I found that there are answers to all of my important questions. Well, that's wonderful, Elder Evans. Care to share a few of those? Sorry, nope, he's not telling. He's keeping mum on that. But he says, I found that there are answers to all of my important questions. And then he adds this, I also found that for some questions, continuing faith, patience, and revelation are needed, which is code for, I couldn't find any freaking answers for some of my questions. But of course, because he found answers to all of his important questions, the ones he doesn't have answers to are by definition not important. Well, I wish he would share them with us so we could judge for ourselves, but he's not going to do that. Next he says, mom put the responsibility of developing faith and finding answers on me. Well, that makes sense for the first part. Yes, the responsibility for developing faith should be on each individual, whether they're LDS or not LDS or whatever religion they might be. Certainly, the responsibility for developing faith rests on the individual. What I have a problem with is when he says, Mom put the responsibility for finding answers on me. Okay, yeah, I get the part that we need to find answers ourselves, but on the other hand, we're members of a church where we have not one, but 15 prophets, seers, and revelators. We've sustained them in this conference as prophets, seers, and revelators. Is it too much to ask that one of these 15 prophets, seers, or revelators could maybe come forward and answer some of these questions that we have about the church that they represent and of which they are the leaders? But that never happens. Why does it never happen? Why don't people ever sit back and say, Look, if you're going to ask us to sustain you as prophets, seers, and revelators, is it too much for you to act like one? I mean, once in a while, maybe once every six months, you could act like a prophet, seer, and revelator, answer some of the questions that we have. Instead of putting the responsibility on us to go out and find the answers to the questions, doesn't that make some sense? And maybe if you're not going to be answering our questions, maybe we're not going to be so eager to raise our right hand when you are asking us to sustain you as prophets, seers and revelators. Next, I need to go to the priesthood session, President Eyring's talk in conclusion of the priesthood session. He said a number of things that deserve comment, and many of the things that he said approach the dangerousness of the things that Elder Oaks said in his talk. But once again, because Elder Oaks talked got all this attention because it was so dang controversial, and rightfully so, I might add, President Eyring kind of got away with the stuff he was talking about 
in priesthood session. As I mentioned before, he continues and develops the theme that leaders of the church are imperfect, but they should be sustained in their role as leaders of the church anyway. He goes beyond just saying imperfect. He means doctrinally and revelatorily, if that's a word, fallible. He tacitly admits that leaders of the church can be wrong about revelation they say that they receive and can be wrong about doctrine they pronounce as doctrine. And yet, in spite of that, the members of the church should still follow them as prophets, seers, and revelators. And not only that, he says that members of the church who are aware that leaders of the church have given false revelation or made doctrinal errors should keep it to themselves and not tell anybody else. Why? Because if they told anybody else the truth about these failures at revelation and doctrinally incorrect statements, then other Mormons might lose faith in their leaders as being doctrinally infallible and revelatorily inerrant. Let's go through what it is that President Eyring says. The first thing he says is interesting on a different level. He talks about four basic fundamentals which he hopes the priesthood already understands. First, Jesus Christ is the head of the church and all the earth. I am quoting from his talk here. Second, he leads his church today by speaking to men called as prophets. And he does it through revelation. So this is a remarkable claim made with absolutely no evidence and in fact an abundance of evidence that it is not true that Jesus Christ is actually speaking to the leaders of the church today including President Monson, maybe including President Eyring, that Jesus is speaking to him today and he does it through revelation. Well, there is no revelation in the church today. That's why Elder Oaks in his talk has to go back 22 years to recast a political position statement called the Proclamation on the Family as a revelation because there is no revelation in the church today. This is the closest we get is political statements signed by the top 15 leaders of the church. Third, President Eyring goes on, he gave revelation to his prophets long ago, still does, and will continue to do so. Well, the only one of those three assertions that you can point to anything and say it's true is the first one, that he gave revelation to his prophets long ago. Still does, sorry, nothing we can point to, will continue to do so. Well, that is a hope that is not supported by the president of the LDS Church. He's not going to continue to do so. That's one of the things that's in the Articles of Faith that we're always quoting, that God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Well, that is a hope that is not based on anything that's going on right now. I don't know why we should expect that God is going to reveal something in the future when he sure doesn't seem to be able to reveal anything to the current leadership and has not been able to reveal anything to the leadership of the church for almost 100 years. Once again, it bears repeating that the most recent section of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 138, was received as a vision by President Joseph F. Smith, not Joseph Smith, not Joseph Fielding Smith, President Joseph F. Smith, in 1918. Next year will mark the 100th anniversary of the last vision, or anything divine, that came to a president of the church that was canonized in the Doctrine and Covenants. That is a long time to go without any revelation from God, and it doesn't look like anything is going to be changing on that front anytime in the near future. But the fourth thing that President Eyring says is what I find so interesting. After saying that God leads his church through prophets, he gives him revelation. Fourth, he gives confirming revelation to those who serve under the leadership of his prophets. Well, who serves under the leadership of his prophets? That's everybody else in the church. We all serve in different callings under the leadership of his prophets. And what he says about them is, you know, Jesus gives revelation to his prophets, but he gives a different kind of revelation to the members. The kind of revelation he gives to the members is confirming revelation. That's exactly what he says. And those words leapt out to me when I heard him say them, when I listened to General Conference, and it leapt out to me again when I was reading his conference talk. Because this has long been a tension in Mormonism. The idea is that we have prophets on the earth today who can receive revelation. They are leaders of the church and whatever revelation they receive is binding on the church with the caveat that every member of the church has the ability to pray to God about what it is that the leaders say and receive a revelation themselves as to whether what they're saying is correct or not. In addition, it is generally taught that members of the church can receive revelation in their own lives about different matters from God. They can receive personal revelation. But the truth of the matter is that the only revelation that members can receive is a confirming revelation, 
that what their leaders have told them is true. Because if they pray to God to find out if what a leader has said is true and they get an answer saying, hey, this isn't true, then immediately what the church says is, hey, that revelation, that's not coming from God. That's either coming from Satan or you're making crazy stuff up in your head. That's not revelation from God because the only revelation a member can receive that is acceptable to the leadership of the church is a revelation that confirms that what the leadership of the church has said is true. And what struck me about Elder Eyring's talk is that he actually admits this. In his fourth fundamental, fourth, he gives confirming revelation to those who serve under the leadership of his prophets. So what he's saying is the prophets are completely different than the members. The prophets can actually receive real revelation, new knowledge, new information, new guidance, new scripture, although they don't. They can receive it. But when it comes to the members of the church, look, you guys can receive revelation that confirms what we say is true. And if you don't receive a revelation that says it, it's not a real revelation. President Irene goes on to say, from those fundamentals, those four fundamentals, we recognize that the Lord's leadership of his church requires great and steady faith from all who serve him on earth. Here he's going to talk about how the leaders of the church are not perfect. They make mistakes. And yet the members of the church still need to sustain them as the leaders of the church, regardless of how much they screw things up. He says it takes faith to believe that he calls imperfect people into positions of trust. Well, that's a bit of an overstatement. Obviously, we know everybody's imperfect. Who else is he going to call into a position of trust except somebody who's imperfect? But then he goes on to say, it takes faith to believe that he knows the people he calls perfectly, both their capacities and their potential, and so makes no mistakes in his calls. Now, Elder Eyring is going to this point of saying, every calling that is made in the church is given by inspiration. God's behind everything, pulling the strings, Yes, this person needs to be called as the Sunday school president. Yes, this person needs to be called to work in the primary. Every call throughout the church is dictated by God. And we need to have faith that every call is given by God. Even if that ends up in a calling of a primary worker who is a pedophile, who ends up sexually abusing one or more of the children over whom he or she has stewardship, still, we've got to say that call is from God. He knows that person perfectly and he called them because, dang it, that person should have been in that position. And so God makes no mistakes in his calls. He says it takes faith to do so. Well, yeah, it takes faith to do so. In fact, it takes blind faith to do so. It takes blind faith in complete disregard of the actual facts of people who have been called in the church who end up using their position of trust in order to abuse the members of the church. The list is very long. I don't need to go into details on that subject. But of course, it would take faith to believe that God makes no mistakes in his calls. Then he says it takes even greater faith to believe that the Lord has called imperfect human servants to lead you. Well, he said this before. He's hitting this theme over and over. What he's saying is a variation of what Elder Anderson said a few years ago when he was talking about criticisms of Joseph Smith. You remember the quote? Give Brother Joseph a break. Well, what President Eyring is doing is now he's taking that idea and he's going to apply it to himself and the other leaders of the church, both now and in the past. What he's basically saying is, hey, not only give Brother Joseph a break, let's extend some love here and give us a break too, okay? It takes even greater faith to believe that the Lord is called imperfect human servants to lead you. My purpose tonight is to build your faith that God directs you in your service to him. Actually, his purpose tonight is to build their faith in the imperfect leaders, including himself, who lead them in spite of all their screw-ups. And even more importantly, he says, my hope is to build your faith that the Lord is inspiring the imperfect persons he has called as your leaders. He goes on to say later, for a leader to succeed in the Lord's work, the people's trust that he is called of God must override their view of his infirmities and mortal weaknesses. Well, we're not talking really about whether you like Pepsi more than you like Coke, are we, President Irene? We're not talking about whether you use unleaded or whether you use premium gas at the pump. Rather, what we're really talking about is the fundamental issue of whether you are doctrinally infallible and revelatorily reliable. And then President Irene actually gets to a story that deals with these issues. And it's an interesting story. It's a story about back when he was a bishop. I think it was probably at Stanford University. And a student comes into his office as a bishop and wants advice about educational choices. Now, the first thing is that President Irving tells this story back when he was a bishop. So he was not a general authority at the time. 
He talks about a student who comes into his office to talk about educational choices. So it's not really something that's life-threatening or eternally significant. These are just his educational choices. So it's not really that important, but it's what he does with this that is significant. So here's the story he tells. I remember one young man who asked for counsel about his educational choices. He was a freshman at a very good university. A week after I had given the advice, he scheduled an appointment with me. Okay, so he meets with Bishop Iring. Bishop Iring gives him some advice, and then he calls back to schedule an appointment with Bishop Iring. When he came into the office, he surprised me by asking Bishop, could we pray before we talk, and could we kneel, and may I pray? His request surprised me, continues Elder Iring, but his prayer surprised me even more. It went something like this, Heavenly Father, you know that Bishop Iring gave me advice last week, and it didn't work. Please inspire him to know what I am to do now. Now, this is a good story that President Iring tells. It's self-deprecatory, even though it's self-deprecatory of him as a bishop, not as an apostle. And actually, if you listen to the talk or watched it while he was giving it, as I did, you can see that he's really developing a rapport with his audience. There's a nice synergy going on. There's a lot of mutual back and forth. The audience is laughing because it's funny. President Iring is feeding off the laughter. He's being funnier. It's really probably one of the most successful talks in that regard in General Conference. So I want to give kudos to Elder Iring for the manner of delivery and for how that talk was received. My problem is not with the delivery. My problem is with the message, as we'll go on to talk about. So this young student, this freshman, has gone to Bishop Iring, asked for advice. President Iring has given him bad advice. Now, in other words, he's given him bad revelation. He's given him faulty revelation. Although President Iring, as bishop, thinks it's good revelation, he ends up finding out and admitting to the audience that it's not. So the freshman says, Heavenly Father, you know that Bishop Iring gave me advice last week and it didn't work. Please inspire him to know what I am to do now. Now, you might smile at that, but I didn't. Those are Elder Iring's words. He already knew what the Lord wanted him to do. Okay, so this is a given. This kid already knows by personal revelation what the Lord wants him to do. He's coming to his bishop to have it confirmed for him. That's kind of odd, but maybe not within Mormon circles. To go to his bishop to have it confirmed to him that the personal revelation he received is correct. He already knew what the Lord wanted him to do, but he honored the office of a bishop in the Lord's church and perhaps wanted me to have the chance to gain greater confidence to receive revelation in that calling. It worked. As soon as we stood up and then sat down, the revelation came to me. So this is the second meeting. The first meeting, Elder Iring, as bishop, gives bad advice. He does not receive revelation, but he gives him advice that's wrong. But you see, because it's only an educational choice, it's not that important. However, the implications are wider than that, as we will talk about in a second. As soon as we stood up and then sat down, the revelation came to me. I told him what I felt the Lord would have him do. He was only 18 years old then, but he was mature in spiritual years. So the second time, apparently he tells his kid what the kid already knew that he was supposed to do, but that Elder Iring told him wrong about the first time the kid came in to see him. He already knew he didn't need to go to a bishop on such a problem. So why does he? I have no idea, but this is the story. He already knew he didn't need to go to a bishop on such a problem, but he had learned to sustain the Lord's servant even in his mortal weakness. So this kid has already received his own personal revelation. He knows the educational choice he's supposed to make, but he goes to the bishop to see if the bishop is on the ball enough and in tune enough with God and revelation to receive the revelation that confirms the revelation the kid has already received. This is kind of a bizarre story when you start parsing it out, and yet this is a story that President Iring tells. He goes on to talk about how spiritually mature this kid was and how he went on to become a huge success in the church. He eventually became a stake president. So obviously he was spiritually mature. He carried with him the lesson we learned together. If you have faith, and here's the lesson, by the way, if you have faith that the Lord leads his church through revelation to those imperfect servants he calls, the Lord will open the windows of heaven to them as he will to you. So let's go back to this. If you have faith that the Lord leads his church through revelation. Well, did the kid have faith that the Lord led his church through revelation? I suppose he might have the first time he went to make the appointment with Elder Iring when he was a bishop. But when Elder Iring gives him the wrong advice, the kid knows it's wrong because the kid's already received his own personal revelation from God. Don't you think that faith might be diminished? 
But what President Eyring is doing here is he is lauding the behavior of this kid because even though Bishop Eyring screwed up the first time and gave him the wrong answer, the wrong revelation, the kid came back to him again to give him a chance to get it right. And President Eyring characterizes this lesson as if you have faith that the Lord leads his church through revelation, which is kind of an odd lesson to draw from this particular story. He goes on to say, there was another lesson for me. If that boy had judged me for my failure to give him good advice the first time. Now notice that the bad revelation the first time now just becomes advice in the retelling of the story. We can understand why, but that's what it really means. If that boy had judged me for my failure to give him good revelation the first time, he never would have come back to ask again. And so by choosing not to judge me, he received the confirmation he desired. I mean, really, I'm kind of shaking my head over this one. This is about as convoluted as Elder Holland's wrong road story. But the boy comes to him, and he gets the wrong revelation the first time. He comes to him again, he gets the right revelation. I suppose if Bishop Eyring had given him the wrong revelation the second time, he could have kept coming back the third, fourth, fifth time until Elder Eyring finally got it right, and the boy would have been blessed. Why? For not judging his church priesthood leader for giving him wrong revelation. What are the implications of this story? Why is President Eyring telling this story? Because... I think he is perfectly aware that the church has screwed it royally on Revelation in the past. This is documented beyond any shadow of the doubt. It could be President Young's teaching of the Adam-God doctrine, which he claimed to receive from Revelation from the Lord, versus President Spencer Kimball claiming that the Adam-God theory is false doctrine in 1976 General Conference. One of those things has got to be wrong. Obviously, wrong revelation is being given somewhere along the way by the presidents of the church. Is this what President Eyring is talking about? Don't judge us for giving you wrong revelation. Just keep coming back faithfully and you'll be blessed. Maybe someday you'll be a stake president too if you have that kind of faith. Or it could be the priesthood and temple ban on blacks, which was called not just policy but doctrine in the 1949 first presidency statement, but in 1978 ends up being revoked because God apparently changes his mind and says, hey, by the way... You know that curse that we had on those black people? Well, we're going to lift it now. And now the priesthood and temple blessings can go to all black people. Obviously, somewhere along that line, church leaders got the revelation wrong. And yet what President Eyring wants to teach here, I think, is just pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Just worship the great and almighty Oz, the one who claims to receive revelation. And even if you get wrong revelation, and even if you can show that church leaders have gotten wrong revelation throughout the history of the church, just keep believing. Just keep believing that they can receive revelation now keep having faith in them keep sustaining them because even though they're imperfect and screw things up beyond recognition on a regular basis they need your faith and that will make it so that you will be blessed the windows of heaven will be open great blessings poured out upon you because you will be sustaining me president Iring, in spite of the fact that i wouldn't know a revelation if it came up and bit me in the ass but that's not the only lesson President Eyring wants his audience to draw from this story. Yet another lesson from that experience has served me well. As far as I know, he never told anyone in the ward that I had not given good counsel, i.e. revelation, at first. As far as I know, he never told anyone in the ward that I had not given good counsel at first. Had he done that, it might have reduced the faith of others in the ward to trust the bishop's inspiration. So what lesson is it that Elder Eyring is drawing from this and trying to get the members of the church to understand that if leaders of the church screw up the inspiration, prove that they are doctrinally fallible and revelatorily errant, it is the job of members of the church to not tell other members of the church about it because it might cause them to lose faith in the leaders of the church. Well, <laughs> well, why on earth should it cause a member to lose faith in the doctrinal inerrancy of leaders of the church to find out that they are doctrinally errant? That would seem kind of natural. But this is part of the culture of secrecy in the LDS church. And what President Eyring is saying to all the members of the church is, look, I don't care what you know about leaders of the church, what bad things they've done, what doctrinal misstatements they've made, how they've screwed up Revelation, how they screwed up Mormon doctrine, how they've contradicted each other on a host of issues. Your job is to shut up and not tell anybody else about it because if you tell anybody else about it, it might make them lose faith in the leaders of the church. 
Does this sound at all like the silencing that President Uchtdorf was warning us about in an earlier conference talk? President Eyring goes on, I try not to judge servants of the Lord or to speak of their apparent weaknesses. By the way, whenever leaders of the church have weaknesses in President Eyring's talk, they're never weaknesses. They're always apparent weaknesses. This is sort of like Elder Cook's so-called authenticity. Members of the church have weaknesses. Members of the church who fall away from the church have weaknesses. People outside the church have weaknesses. But leaders of the church, they only have apparent weaknesses. It only looks like they have weaknesses, according to President Eyring. He says, I try not to judge servants of the Lord or to speak of their apparent weaknesses. And then he quotes President Faust, disrespect for ecclesiastical leaders has caused many to suffer spiritual weakening and downfall. Once again, here's the shaming tactic. Here's the guilting. If you say anything negative about the leaders of the church, no matter how much they might deserve it, you could cause somebody else to fall away and not make it to the celestial kingdom. They're going to be in the terrestrial or the telestial or God forbid outer darkness, all because of you and because you said the truth about leaders of the church. He continues with a quote from Elder Faust. We should look past any perceived imperfections. Once again, there's the perceived, right? President Eyring says leaders have apparent weaknesses. President Faust says leaders have perceived imperfections. They're not necessarily really imperfections. They're just perceived as imperfections. We should look past any perceived imperfections, warts or spots of the men called to preside over us and uphold the office which they hold, which is another way of saying exactly what it is that President Eyring just said. So that is the reason that I find this talk by President Eyring, perhaps second only to Elder Oaks' talk, one of the most dangerous and radioactive talks that was given in General Conference. There's a lot of laughter. It was well given. It was well received. But the content of the talk is the leaders of the church are imperfect. They may mistakes they get revelation wrong but you need to have faith in them anyway as prophet seers and revelators and if you catch them giving wrong revelation or making doctrinal errors or misstatements your job is to be quiet about it and not tell anybody else but continue to foster and promulgate the culture of celebrity that is accorded to the leadership of the LDS church that they are prophet seers and revelators and if we find out that they're really not prophet seers and revelators we're supposed to continue to pretend that they are so other people won't think that they're not. That makes a lot of sense. And that is what I take away from President Eyring's talk. Number two, as far as bad talks in general conference, second only to Elder Hoax. <laughs> I said hoax. <laughs> Sorry about that. Freudian slip. Not Elder Hoax. Elder Oaks. Second only to Elder Oaks, who gets top prize in that category. It looks like I have more to talk about than I thought I did. I may make this a two-part episode, and we may end with priesthood session and go on to Sunday session next time. Well, I hope this has been as much fun for you as it has been for me. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.